If I could have everybody's attention, we're going to go ahead and get started with our program today. My name is Brandon Arnold with the Cato Institute, and I'd like to thank everybody for joining us. Uh, you know, I think, uh, I think the way the Cato Institute has looked at the issue of trade is, has, has really been uh, important so far. I think most of the, the, the talk from politicians and in Washington has been about uh, bilateral trade agreements and about promoting exports. And uh, noting that, uh, uh, two of our speakers got together and put together a paper called Beyond Exports, Making a Better Case for Free, for free Trade, and that's what we're here to talk about today. If you didn't get a copy of the paper, it should be available on the registration table outside, and also in addition to all of Cato's resources, is available at our website, cato.org. Um, but we have, a, we have a very loaded panel here, so uh, with, without further ado, I'm going to go ahead and introduce our first speaker so we can get right to it. Um, first up, we're very pleased to welcome Scott Lincecum. He's an uh, international trade attorney with White & Case. Uh, he has extensive experience in trade litigation before the United States Department of Commerce, the U.S. International Trade Commission, the U.S. Court of International Trade, and the World Trade Organization's dispute settlement body. Uh, he's advised corporate and sovereign clients on, uh, on trade issues, and he's also uh, been a political advisor, uh, working on a number of, of campaigns in an advisory role, including that of um, Senator John McCain when he ran for, for president just a couple years ago. Uh, from 1998 to 2001, he worked with us at the Cato Institute, where he's a research assistant working on trade issues. He has a BA in political science from the University of Virginia and a JD from uh, that university school of law. Uh, and noting that it's uh, March Madness, I, I haven't seen UVA play in this year's tournament. I don't know. They haven't played in the tournament for many years now. Okay. They're um, boycotting. Well, I hope you'll join me in supporting my uh, uh, official boycott. Yes. Uh, unofficial. Unofficial boycott. Forced. Well, you can join me in supporting my uh, University of North Carolina Tar Heels instead. Uh, no booing. No booing. No cookies forever, booed. All right, with that, I'll uh, turn things over to Scott. Uh, thank you, Brandon. He's taller than me. There. Um, thanks a lot, and thank you to the Cato Institute for uh, having me. Um, thank you all for coming. And uh, before I begin, I just have to give the typical lawyer disclaimer. Everything I say here is on my personal behalf and not on behalf of my law firm. Um, so before uh, I talk about the paper Dan and I wrote, um, I, think it's a, I think it's important to explain briefly the origins of, of how this paper came about. Um, I was actually in a post-election meeting of um, free trade-minded individuals uh, talking about the future of U.S. trade policy, particularly given the uh, pretty radical shift in the con makeup of Congress. And there were two groups in the room. Um, I like to call one of them the poll-driven politicos and on the other side, the data-driven wonks. And basically, an hour and a half conversation went something like this. The wonks said, we have all the facts on our side, uh, so you should broaden your arguments. The politicos said, yeah, you're totally right, but there's no chance we're doing that. Trade polls horribly, and everybody loves exports. And leaving that meeting rather frustrated, and kind of the disconnect between the two sides, I emailed Dan and said, you know, we really should try to write something that tries to bridge the gap between these two and demonstrates that the same old message doesn't work and there are good poll-worthy arguments for free trade. So that leads me to the paper. 
Um, to summarize the paper in, in one sentence, I'd say that if the de definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result, then anyone looking to sell free trade policies using the same old mercantilist message is clearly and certifiably bonkers. The, the fact is, it's unnecessary and it's unhelpful. So we, we, we lay out kind of the current environment uh, for the trade debate that goes on here in DC and elsewhere. And, um, you know, for the first time in several years, trade's kind of a hot issue. Um, we have a president who's actually willing to talk about it. Uh, we have the US-Korea FTA, which is being debated right and left. Uh, all these, the two other pending FTAs, we have the generalized system of preferences, the uh, kind of depressing Doha round, trade adjustment assistance, trade promotion authority. All of these things are actually being discussed for the first time in a few years. And it's a kind of a unique window because it's all going to be gone next year when the election rolls around and people stop talking about trade for some of the poll reasons I mentioned and, and will mention. Um, you see that despite the fact that more Americans than ever are reaping the benefits of trade through imports, exports, investment, um, in fact, at this, you know, almost 30% of our total GDP is from imports and exports. I mean, trade is a huge part of our lives and our economy. But despite that, pulling on trade routinely stinks. Mainly that's due, as Dan and I argued in an, a 2009 paper, due to media hype and misreporting, the perpetuation of a few protectionist myths that we'll talk about, Dan will hit on. Um, and finally, bad free trade messaging. Um, and if you look at these polls a little closer, and we do in the paper, you see that first and foremost, trade is never a top concern for people. And perhaps because of that, there's a significant malleability in the polls. You see that opinions tend to fluctuate a lot, and they tend to be um, somewhat based on kind of partisan makeup. So in other words, good example is, um, trade really cratered amongst self-identified Democrats uh, during the presidential debates, the primary debates in 2007 and 2008. And this, of course, was when then-candidate Obama and, and other candidates were routinely criticizing NAFTA and trade and, and its allegedly job-destroying um, effects. Then, if you look at the next year for polling, when now President Obama started talking positively about trade, there was a significant rebound. Um, it's almost about 20 percentage points, again, amongst these self-identified Democrat, Democrats. And what that shows us is that there's a lot of malleability, and it shows us that better salesmanship and a better strategy can actually change some minds in this and can affect things. And it's particularly important, as I mentioned, for in 2011 when everybody's talking about trade. Now, the problem, as I kind of alluded to, is that the current free trade message in Congress and the business community is just not very good. For most people on the Hill and in the White House and in, in business groups. The goal of US trade policy is exports and reciprocity. We'll begrudgingly lower our import barriers if you open your export markets. And, um, and this is the, the, the sorry, that the, the reasons for this are, again, it's all about these polls. Um, and we've seen this throughout. There are USTRs from Mickey Kanner to Sue Schwab to Ron Kirk, all do this, and they're definitely not alone. 
And in fact, the US Chamber's top 10 reasons for trade uh, mentioned imports only once. It was all about exports. Now, this message is wrong-headed for, for two main reasons. First, it, as we write in the paper, it sows the seeds of its own destruction. And this is really important. You see, focusing on exports and trade surpluses and these mercantilist arguments strongly implies that exports are good, imports are bad, and the trade deficits are a sign that US trade policy is failing. And this argument is exactly the primary yet utterly false argument of those seeking to thwart freer trade and free trade agreements. Second, this data-driven message also allows the anti-trade groups to kind of run out the clock on the debate by grousing over export data or whether forecasts were correct. And when you have the lead, you know, as anybody knows, that's what you do. You just run out the clock. And now don't take my word for it. Here, I, I did a little Googling before this, and here's Sherrod Brown on chorus. Asking Congress and the American people to support this agreement while Ohioans are still finding their footing in this harsh economy is no small request. More than 10 years of NAFTA and alleged free trade with China has brought a $2 billion per day trade deficit and the loss of millions of manufacturing jobs that should go to Ohio's skilled workers. Uh, Self-avowed protectionist Ian Fletcher said the other day, NAFTA was sold as a policy that would reduce America's trade deficit, but our trade balance actually worsened against both Canada and Mexico. Cue ominous music. The, the point here is that this is what these guys rely on, and the current free trade message simply reinforces it. And it creates what I call a, a vicious cycle of bad trade message, bad poll, which resort to bad trade message, which creates bad poll. You know, rinse, repeat. But beyond the, the, that problem, there are just much better, broader reasons to support trade liberalization. Foremost, and the one I'll talk about, is that free trade policies can be and are best spoken of in moral and common sense terms. Trade is about voluntary, mutual, mutually beneficial ex economic exchange among individuals. I buy from you or I buy from a guy in Mexico, either way. I'm choosing to trade because it makes me better off than I would be if I didn't trade. Beyond that, tariffs and other trade barriers are simply put regressive taxes on American families and businesses that line the pockets of well-connected, uncompetitive industries and unions. FTAs and other policies that remove these nasty things should be welcomed. See, protectionism is nothing more than another type of earmark. Um, it simply takes money from one group consumers and gives it to another. The only difference is that that money comes out of consumers' hides instead of the general treasury. Um, yet up here on Capitol Hill, free trade is rarely spoken of in such obvious, simple, common sense terms. Example, here's a good example. So, so suppose someone proposes a 1% sales tax, all revenues of which will go to the shady, well-connected typewriter industry. Okay. First response from everybody in the room is not going to be to point out the economic trouble of this. It's to simply say that's insane and wrong for you to do this, and it's quite obvious. Um, and it would be, and likewise, the removal of such a tax wouldn't be justified by pointing to its economic benefits, but but rather why why we're not letting government get in, involved in this? Why they're not letting them tax us to benefit them? 
And in this way, trade can be a very bipartisan issue. It's, on the right, it's about small government cutting taxes and letting the free market reign. But on the left, it's also sellable on, you know, it's against corporate welfare. And it's to lower taxes that harm poor American families the most. Now, beyond the moral case, there's the economic case. And I'm the lawyer in the room, so I'm not going to talk about that. I'll let Don and Dan do that. But I will say that the overwhelming empirical evidence shows that free trade is dramatically beneficial. This is exports and imports and investment and specialization and competition, all these great things. Now, once trade is couched in these terms, the burden is shifted, we say, to the, to the protectionist to prove the value of his or her protectionism. For example, you know, during the healthcare debate, President Obama didn't simply begin taxing and regulating through his policies. He spent 15 months trying to convince the American public of the value of his position. But protectionists don't do that. I mean, they should be at least forced to give us a week of their time to demonstrate the value of their protectionism. And yet, at this point, these, the game is gonna, going to be over for the protectionist because the protectionist will always fail to make the case because all of the anti-trade arguments are predicated on one of a few basic myths that Dan's going to hit on. I mentioned the biggie. It's, it's the trade deficit, and, and Dan will definitely hit on that. But they can all be easily dismissed with a few simple facts. So to conclude, back to what a poll-driven politico or anyone else that, for that matter, should, should say about trade. Well, first, you lead with your principles and with basic common sense. I support this FTA or this policy because it cuts taxes, it ends corporate welfare, and enhances personal freedom by letting Americans more easily pursue their own uh, economic interests. Then follow up with some facts. There's overwhelming economic evidence of all of tra trade's benefits, be they about imports or exports or investment or jobs or whatever, it's all great. And then finally, force the other side to prove the value of his opposition and dis then dismantle the myths that he'll inevitably throw out. If you do those things, we say the, the polls will change. They can change. Um, and if you stick to the old message, again, it's just more of the same and, and somewhat nutty. Thanks, Scott. Um, let me note before I introduce our next speaker, we do have a few chairs over here. I know there's a bunch of people in the back, so feel free to, to uh, come and find a seat up front here. Uh, now's a better time to probably do it while I'm talking instead of uh, uh, when we get to our speakers. Um, well, next up we have uh, uh, Professor Don Boudreau. Uh, he was the previous chairman of the Department of Economics at George Mason University, where he still teaches. Uh, prior to that, he was the president of the Foundation for Economic Education. He's also been an associate professor of legal studies and economics at Clemson University and an assistant professor of economics at George Mason University prior to that. Uh, he holds a PhD in economics from Auburn University and a law degree uh, from the University of Virginia. Also note he is an adjunct at uh, the Cato Institute, so all of our uh, uh, speakers today are either currently or previously affiliated with Cato. Uh, 
Um, and the most important thing probably I'll tell you about uh, Professor Boudreaux's background uh, or biography is that he blogs at Cafe Hayek. I don't know if anyone is familiar with that. I know a few people there. Uh, probably frequent uh, frequent readers. It's an excellent blog. He does it along with uh, Professor Russell Roberts. Uh, definitely recommend checking out Cafe Hayek. Really interesting take on uh, economics and and certainly uh, trade. With that, I will turn things turn, th turn things over to Don. Thanks very much. I'm uh, honored to be here and honored to be uh, to share a podium with uh, with Scott and and Dan and, and always fine Cato folks. Brandon mentioned that I blog at Cafe Hayek. I, I do, I recommend you go there several times a day, hit it constantly. I also wrote a book called Globalization, makes a great holiday gift for your pets. <laughs> Buy lots of copies, promoting free trade. Um, ha Cafe Hayek is named after F.A. Hayek, the late Nobel Prize winning economist. And Hayek's, Hayek wrote a famous essay uh, entitled The Confusion of Language in Political Thought. And I don't think there's any area of policy that involves economics that has more confusing language than does the trade area. Uh, the, the talk about exports is, is right up there as confusing language. People think exports are good. I mean, to promote exports, uh, to promote a policy that, that, that emphasizes exports is like promoting a policy saying, you know, uh, vote for me. I'll implement policies that ensure that you work harder and harder and produce more and more and get less and less in return. If it was put that way, people would say, hmm, that doesn't sound so good. But that really is what all this export promotion amounts to because people don't understand the economics and they don't understand really what the term export means. They don't understand what the word import really means as they connect to each other. No term is more misunderstood in this debate than the trade deficit. Um, and I... Uh, 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 Scott kind of set me up. I'm going to actually change a little bit what I in intended to, to say and, and, and focus a little bit on, on the trade deficit. The, the trade deficit sounds bad. Every time a news reporter talks about the trade deficit rising, there's a collective groan, oh, no, it's bad. Or if it falls, it's like, whoo, that's really good news. Um, uh, it sounds like we're losing something. It sounds like uh, you know, something must be repaid. Uh, I believe that this popular view of the trade deficit uh, and it's one that I'm sorry to say is shared by uh, uh, more than a few economists who don't think seriously about trade. Actually, a lot of economists don't think seriously about economics in general, but that's, that, that's another issue. Uh, uh, I think it, this view is completely backwards. A trade deficit never, ever, ever is a cause of economic harm. It always improves the economy. It may or may not be a symptom of something going awry, but no one should ever lament the trade deficit per se. A U.S. trade deficit or U.S. current account deficit, to be more precise, in today's world of nation-based currencies means that foreigners are investing in America. They're investing in dollar-denominated assets. I think investment's good. Investment expands the U.S. capital base. It increases our output. It makes workers more productive, and more productive workers over time earn more compensation. The standard of living rises. Investment's good regardless of the nationalities of the person doing the investment. If I like the output from the factory across town, or if I find an attractive job in that factory, I don't care if that factory's owned by someone from Jacksonville or someone from Jakarta. The economic consequences in both cases 
are the same. To lament an American trade deficit is to lament the fact that foreigners are investing in America. And that seems rather odd to me. And it's important to keep in mind that capital, productive assets, including worker skills, is not fixed in size. It's not a fixed pie of capital in the world. It just gets redistributed according to different trade patterns and investment patterns. Capital can and does expand. It can also shrink depending upon the extant policies. Much of the fear over the trade deficit arises from the misconception that more foreign investment in America, while it might increase the size of the capital stock in America, reduces American share of ownership in that capital stock. It could be true, but not necessarily. When BMW builds a plant in Greer, South Carolina, that doesn't shrink America's capital stock. That increases America's capital stock. Nor does it necessarily mean that Americans have less capital themselves to own. If the persons who sold the land, let's say, to BMW took the proceeds from those land sales and started their own businesses, I don't know, Microsoft, or I'm sure that was, wasn't one of them in, in, that, in that example, but started their own firms, invested in existing American cor or corporations, no matter where they are, they became wealthier too. Their ownership of capital increased as well. And so when foreigners invest in America, that makes us wealthier, that makes them wealthier. So whenever I hear reports of increases in America's trade deficit, I hear, oh, great, in foreigners are investing more in the United States. And I rejoice because of that. More investment here. Our capital stock is likely increasing in size, and people the world over generally still regard the United States as at least a relatively good place to invest. They have confidence in the US economy. Now, one thing uh, uh, people will say is that, well, and I get this a lot, yeah, but that, that might be true if it's people investing in companies. But what about foreigners buying Uncle Sam's treasuries? And if you think about this, you don't have to think about it too long. It's an, an incredibly odd argument. Most of the, a lot of the same people who complain about America's trade deficit are right here in Capitol Hill, and they are voting for higher budget deficits. I do think that when the U.S. trade deficit rises because foreigners are buying more U.S. treasuries, that that is a symptom of a malady, the malady being growing U.S. government indebtedness. The problem is not the trade deficit. The problem is the budget deficit. But I'm glad, given how much Congress chooses to spend, I'm glad that foreigners are here to help us burden, uh, share part of the burden of that, of that debt. Uh, I don't believe, this is an empirical question, and actually I'm starting some research on it now, I don't believe that foreigners' willingness to lend to Uncle Sam has much, if any, effect on Uncle Sam's fiscal decisions. I don't think Speaker Boehner and uh, uh, Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid is saying, well, you know, you know let, let's raise the deficit because the Chinese are willing to lend us more. I, I don't think that's what's going on. Uh, these, these decisions are made for political reasons. This is not a, a business uh, being run on sound fiscal principles. It's a bunch of political decisions being made. Uh, but regardless, regardless, if Uncle Sam is in debt, going into debt by X billion or billion, that's what a quaint number, X trillion uh, 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 annually now, and the foreigners are willing to help us shoulder part of that burden, I welcome it, because that means that we have then less U.S. capital tied up in, in wasteful uh, government expenditures, and hence more U.S. capital left available for productive 
private investment. I want to end with uh, two, uh, 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 two quick items. Uh, when foreigners invest here, and by, by the way, it's not the case, I don't want to leave you the impression it's the case that most foreign investment is in U.S. Treasuries. It's not. Between 2000, the year 2000 through 2009, that 10-year span, according to recent data from UNCTAD, $1.8 trillion of direct foreign investment flowed into the United States. That's a huge amount of, well, maybe not anymore given the current budget, uh, pre-existing uh, administration uh, uh, budget figures, that was a large amount of money. It's a lot of money, actually, flowing into the United States, into private, private firms. Um, and when this money comes in, it comes in with creative ideas from entrepreneurs abroad, from investors abroad. How many of you read The New Yorker? This says a lot about this audience. <laughs> it's a magazine. <laughs> at, the, at the back of the New Yorker, for the past several years, there's this, uh, this really nice feature. It's called the, 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 the caption contest. I think it's what it's called. And they print a, a one-frame cartoon, but without a caption. It's just some guy, crazy picture, you know, of some guy, you know, I don't know, a guy dressed in men's clothes with devils hanging around. Or, or one I remember is a doctor sitting at a desk, and there was this gigantic hand coming in through the door. And that's the one, uh, 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 well, I'm getting ahead of myself. Uh, the idea in this contest is they print these cartoons, there's no caption, and then they invite people to submit a caption. And I view that caption submission as a piece of capital. Right? If you get a good caption to go along with the cartoon, you can make the cartoon funnier. And the, the better the caption, the better it fits with the cartoon, the more valuable the cartoon. So people from all over the world can contribute. You don't have to just be a New Yorker. You don't have to just be an American. You can be from Queensland or from Queens to contribute a caption. And the, the, then they have this contest, and the best caption wins. The, the, the one I, I entered was just this big hand coming through the door. And I thought I'd win because the caption I submitted was, you know, the doctor saying, don't worry, we'll have you invisible again in no time. But it did, it, it did. I thought it was pretty good. It didn't, it didn't make it. It didn't, it didn't make the, the, the final three. Right. But, but, but I, I, the, the analogy I'm drawing is, uh, suppose the New Yorker limited the people, the group of people who could submit captions to only people who lived in Manhattan. Well, they might get a really great caption. But they're eliminating possibilities of getting captions from Queens and from Queensland. By opening it up to the entire world, you don't even have to be a subscriber to The New Yorker to enter this weekly caption contest. The ideas from all over the world get to flow in to work with this e existing piece of capital that's not yet complete. Someone else comes in, adds another piece of capital, a caption, and you get a more valuable product. By America welcoming foreign investment, we allow the creative, maximum amount of creative ideas from all over the world, not limiting those ideas only to Americans. I want to end uh, with uh, a quotation. It's one of my favorite quotations. It has nothing to do with the trade deficit, but it does have something to do with the morality of trade. I'm very pedestrian, and one of the books that I like best is the 11-volume work by William, 
uh, Will and Ariel Durant on the story of civilization. And the second in that volume, that, this is an incredible work. The first volume was published in 1934. The last volume was published in 1975. Um, the, the second volume is entitled The Life of Greece. And uh, the Durants are talking about the rise of ancient Athens. And they said, you know, basically in 100 years, this went from being a small, nondescript uh, uh, outpost, not much, to being the first great classical civilization in history. And Durant, who I don't think had any, any particular ideological bias one way or the other, ascribed Athens' rise, ancient Athens' rise, to trade. So it's because Athens traded, Athens became great. And this is a wonderful quotation. He says, the crossroads of trade are the meeting places of ideas, the attrition ground of rival customs and beliefs. Diversities beget conflict, comparison, thought. Superstitions cancel one another, and reason begins. Trade's not just about more goods and services. It certainly delivers that. It's not just about freedom, and that's important. But it stimulates our thought. It makes us more cosmopolitan. It keeps us civilized. Thank you. Thanks, Don. Uh, batting cleanup today, we have Dan Eikenson. Dan is the Associate Director of Cato's Center for Trade Policy Studies, where he focused on a broad range of trade issues, including WTO disputes, U.S.-China trade issues, uh, and anti-dumping policies. Uh, prior to joining Cato in 2000, Eikenson was Director of the International Trade Planning for an international accounting and business advisory firm. Before that, he co-founded the Library of International Trade Resources. He holds a master's in economics from George Washington University. And I should also note briefly, he is the co-author of the study uh, Beyond Exports, which again is available on the table outside. And with that, I'll turn things over to Dan. Thank you, Brandon. <clears throat> well, Scott outli outlined uh, the uh, points of our paper and added a few extra uh, pieces of opinion. Uh, and Don had treated us to his uh, uh, elaboration of the trade deficit and added some other uh, witty anecdotes. And uh, I would also encourage you both, uh, you all, to visit both of their uh, sites. They're both uh, prodigious bloggers on trade issues, Cafe Hayek and, uh, what is it, Scott? It's uh, Linsicum. Lins well, Scott Linsicum, you can just Google that, but Linsicum at blogspot.com. And, of course, if you want to be treated to the wisdom of the Cato uh, Institute, you can visit us at uh, Cato at Liberty or just at Cato.org, and you can find our blogs there. I'm going to do something a little different in the next 10 minutes. I'm going to try to explain why it's crucial that you all and that policymakers understand what it is that Scott and Don just explained. Uh, it really boils down to this. Uh, you can't have good trade policy if policymakers don't understand how the benefits of trade are manifest. I think that's the situation we're in right now. Last week I testified at a congressional hearing uh, up, up here in this very building, and the title of it was Made in America, Increasing Jobs Through Exports and Trade. Through exports and trade. That's like saying increasing jobs through exports and exports and trade. Uh, it's redundant. The reason is that imports remain a dirty word in these halls, up on this hill, uh, and in this city. Why? Because policymakers in the media, I think, uh, and as a result, the public, uh, see trade as a zero-sum game. It's not a zero-sum game. 
but Americans like sports analogies. But sports analogies, I think, are particularly ill-suited to explain trade. Uh, they're ill-suited as metaphors for trade. Exchange is mutually beneficial, or else it will be foregone. And because it's mutually beneficial, there are really only winners. Uh, so sports analogies don't really apply. Nonetheless, we have opinion leaders insisting on sports analogies. They talk about the world economy as a competition between us and them. Uh, they talk about the trade account as a scoreboard. Exports are our points. Imports are the other team's points. The scoreboard, by the way, says that we're losing in trade because we have a trade deficit. And we're losing because our trade partners cheat and we, inf we fail to enforce the rules that exist. And as a result of our failure to enforce and this, 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 the rules and all this resulting cheating, we've seen the evisceration of U.S. manufacturing. So these are a lot of the fallacies, I think, that undergird uh, the, what we see in trade policy. Uh, trade policy really is seeking to tilt the playing field in favor of our team by underwriting and promoting exports uh, while limiting imports. I just want to briefly refute Don spoke about the trade deficit, so I won't speak too much about that, but this idea that it's us versus them. Come on, you've guys, you guys have all seen the, read about the iPod example or the iPhone example. The world is interdependent. Uh, the proliferation of global supply chains, production and supply chains, cross-border uh, investment have really rendered this view of the world where it's us versus them uh, obsolete. Uh, there is really collaboration within supply chains before there's competition between them. Um, the iPhone and iPad examples are great. Let's look at the U.S. auto industry. Uh, more than 50% of U.S. auto production is, is, comes out of the factories of U.S. foreign nameplates in the United States. The largest American steel company is a foreign-owned company, an Indian company with headquarters in the Netherlands. Um, this idea that manufacturing is, is in decline, you hear it up here all the time. It's just simply not true. Uh, manufacturing is thriving. It's been breaking records year after year after year, with the exception of during the recession years that we've had. But it's been on this trajectory of breaking records year after year with respect to profits, revenues, return on investment, output, value added, exports, imports. The one statistic that matters most here, and which matters, uh, is that, there, uh, that we've, we've lost jobs at manufacturing. That, by the way, peaked in 1979 at about 19.3 uh, million. Um, but the fact that we've lost jobs in manufacturing has nothing really to do with trade. <clears throat> we've been able to re-employ people in our economy consistently, uh, with the exception of the past couple of years. Something has happened, uh, but I'm not willing to attribute our failure to re-employ people uh, to trade. Um, Manufacturing is thriving, and it's really come back strongly from the recession. <clears throat> People understand that exports contribute to economic growth, which is essential to job creation, but then many make the mistake of saying, well, if exports contribute to economic growth and job creation, then imports must uh, take away from, must, must shrink the economy and cost jobs. That, I think, is the central misconception uh, that's perpetuated by the media on a, fairly, on a monthly basis. Just two weeks ago, when the trade statistics came out, um, uh, AP economics writer Martin Kretzinger wrote, a widening trade deficit hurts the U.S. economy. When imports outpace exports, more jobs go to foreign workers than to U.S. workers. Well, that outcome is possible, but there's certainly, as an ironclad law, it is an indefensible statement. 
The opposite conclusion uh, is, is, is supported empirically, in fact. There exists a very strong positive uh, historical relationship between the trade deficit and economic growth, between the trade deficit and, and U.S. job growth. In fact, in the quarter century between 1983 and 2007, the last year before the recession kicked in, uh, real GDP more than doubled. The real value of U.S. trade increased fivefold. The U.S. trade deficit increased by nearly tenfold. Uh, but the U.S. economy created 46 million net new jobs. That's 1.84 million net new jobs per year. So to Marty Krutzinger, just saying. Yeah. Now, it is from within these clouds of misinformation and mythology uh, that bad policy emerges. Uh, in his 2010 State of the Union address, President Obama announced the goal of doubling U.S. exports in five years. And the National uh, Export Initiative has become sort of the centerpiece uh, of the administration's trade policy agenda. Some components of the NEI make sense. You know, streamlining, simplifying export controls uh, makes sense to me. Let's reduce the regulatory burdens. That will help uh, facilitate export growth. Passing the three pending bilateral trade agreements. Yeah, we've been saying let's, let's get that done. Uh, the Doha round, wrap that up. Let's, let's make some more liberalization there. Trans-Pacific Partnership, yeah, good ideas. But the other aspects of the NEI are, are much more troubling. There are errors of omission, errors of commission. The biggest error of omission is just in the assumption that the only obstacles facing U.S. exporters are the obstacles they face as exporters. Uh, but before they're exporters, our exporters are producers. And these producers have to deal with a whole web of regulations in the United States. And they do a lot of importing. Uh, so import duties uh, are, are a huge cost uh, to, to our exporters. So, but there's not a word devoted to the idea that we need to somehow uh, make importing easier and more, uh, less costly for our U.S. producers. So um, the NEI is silent on these issues. My question would be, why do we devote taxpayer resources uh, to marketing expenses, which is also what the NEI does, marketing expenses for business, for that matter, why do we devote all these efforts to getting the Koreans to reduce a tariff by 5% when the exporters that that is supposed to benefit are still plagued by a 10 or 15% duty on their imported components? Well, if you're going to go after reducing the barriers abroad, let's <laughs> reduce them here as well. The reason we don't is because policymakers don't see imports as bad. In fact, they see them as good. They see them as protecting our team. Uh, the, the Bureau of Economic Analysis shows that about 55% of U.S. exports last year were intermediate goods and capital equipment. These are the kinds of things that our producers purchase. They're not things that our consumers purchase. That fact alone, I think, makes, makes apparent that uh, imports are a crucial determinant of the profitability of U.S. producers and their capacity to compete at home and abroad. So uh, existing import duties are very much, they very much hurt our team if they want to keep it in their parlance. Um, so the, uh, the, the, the National Export Initiative, in my opinion, is testament to the endurance of the fallacy. If exports help grow the economy, then imports must help shrink them. And it gets worse, because if you believe that imports are the opponent's points, uh, if you believe that U.S. manufacturing is in decline, uh, if you attribute that alleged decline to unsavory foreign trade practices, if you believe that the world economy is defined as our producers against their producers, 
uh, if you believe that people don't exchange because of the mutual benefits of exchange, if you believe that international trade is a zero-sum game, then you probably believe that America, the collective, must raise its game to win the future. That American companies must secure export markets and not cede them to other countries' exporters. And that the resources of the federal government should be enlisted to do whatever it takes uh, to support our producers, to support our team, regardless of the expense to everyone else. If you believe all those things, then you're probably not in the least bit concerned about the industrial policy that is being thrust upon the U.S. economy by a president who is devoted to picking winners and, and losers in industries and making sure that those winners win at all costs. If you see the world in those terms, then you probably have no qualms about rolling over for policy that tilts the playing field in favor of our team, even if the costs come out of your hide. So with over $100 billion in direct subsidies and tax credits already devoted to green, uh, green technology, it's no secret that President Obama has been promoting investment in solar panels, wind harnessing te technologies, lithium-ion batteries. Concerning those industries, the President said, countries like China are moving even faster. I'm not going to settle for a situation where the United States comes in second place or third place or fourth place in what will be the most important economic engine of the future. But how does the president know that these will be the most important economic engines of the future? Did President Obama's predecessors foresee the arrival of Steve Jobs, Bill Gates, Mark Zuckerberg, and the revolutionary products and services that they delivered? Did Washington bureaucrats uh, anticipate the advent of these life-saving uh, and life-extending medicines and devices like these digestible uh, pill-sized cameras that you can swallow to uh, photograph your GI system? Had those proposing industrial policy uh, in response to a rising Japan in the 1990s and early 90s, 80s and early 90s prevailed, much of that technology would not have come to fruition. So by placing bets on particular industries, the administration is overriding a selective evolutionary process that has undergirded the world's most successful innovation machine, that being the United States, while reducing the chances of worthy ideas, their firms and industries leading the next commercial wave. Uh, this path is predicated first and foremost on a failure to recognize that trade is not a competition between us and them and that trade is about more than a contribution, more than about the contribution of exports to GDP. Uh, those, uh, instead of picking winners and losers, uh, and defining success as capturing export markets. Uh, you, we should be more receptive to policies that are likely to underwrite uh, U.S. economic growth, not, not only through 2014, but, but, but well into the future. And those policies don't promote the interests of producers over other U.S. entities. They don't promote specific economic activities. They don't preordain industrial, industrial organization two decades from now. Good policy is the best guarantor of future U.S. competitiveness. Good policy doesn't pick winners and losers. Good policy attracts capital investment and human capital, both of which tend to flow to jurisdictions with the fewest administrative and physical frictions uh, and, and those jurisdictions with the least risk and uncertainty. That once defined the United States. It still does, but to, but to a lesser degree. That once clear American advantage has atrophied and policymakers aren't paying it any attention today. According to a survey of 13,000 uh, business executives worldwide conducted by the World Economic Forum, 52 countries have less burdensome regulations than the United States. Then add to that fact uh, that the United States has the highest corporate tax rate among all OECD countries, the sense that the rule of law is no longer bedrock here, uh, the business and political climates re remain uncertain here, 
Asset expropriation through, through torts, through bankruptcy and antitrust procedures is a real threat. The workforce doesn't have the skills required by producers in an economy at the technological forefront. The regulatory environment is stifling. Compliance costs are eating into the bottom lines. More and more companies. And the government treats our innovators as adversaries. Physical infrastructure is also in disrepair. So it isn't so mysterious once you recognize that why U.S. businesses aren't investing and hiring in droves. Uh, meanwhile, forward-looking governments around the world uh, are trying to woo R &D uh, investment in R&D facilities and high-tech manufacturing and educated human beings with proper incentives. Yet we treat uh, our innovators and skilled immigrants here with contempt or indifference. So this uh, global competition policy is a positive development, uh, but we are kidding ourselves that we think we don't have to compete for our share. The longer we delude ourselves uh, with mercantilist myths, the longer we pursue policies based on a misreading of the benefits of trade and how they are manifest, the less likely we are to adopt and maintain the policies necessary to keeping the United States in the technological vanguard and among the world's economic elite. That's why you need to understand the message that, that Don and Scott uh, said to you today. Thank you. Thanks a lot, Dan. We uh, have time for questions and answers. Uh, if you have a question and I call on you, please uh, try to keep it relatively short and please speak up because we don't have microphones for the crowd. Questions? Uh, we'll start right here. I think the moral, the moral arguments are there, and I think we do make them all the time, but, but it, I, what you're pointing to is not so much a failure of making moral arguments. What you're pointing to is the unfortunate fact that the invisible hand's invisible. <laughs> uh, you know, the, the, the effects of the visible foot can be seen, right? You can, you can show the factory coming back to life when the tariff wall goes up. <laughs> You can't see, it's, or it's very difficult to make visible the, this incredibly complex uh, working of the invisible hand. And that's a real problem. I mean, some people do it better than others. I think John Stossel does a good job of, of giving us glimpses of the workings of the invisible hand. Some people do it better. But I don't think it's a failure of the moral argument so much as it is just the, the PR that visible things have a more visceral impact than invisible things. I, 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 we've discussed this, this uh, my colleagues and I, and it's, uh, 
We've been in debates where, you know, we cite the data and uh, the, the opponent sits there kind of smugly and just, you know, all of a sudden puts up a PowerPoint and there's a picture of a closed factory. You know, it's, uh, it's a pretty compelling story. But there are, there are victims of protectionism that, that, evo that are evocative like that as well. Uh, like the single, single mother who has to buy clothes and food for her children, but clothing and food and, for that matter, shelter uh, is disproportionately taxed in the United States by, by import duties, trade remedy duties, you know, lumber and cement and steel, paint. But uh, our highest tariffs, our tariff peaks are on clothing, uh, food. Uh, so uh, we can make the case that, look, this is a real regressive tax, and look who the victims are here. Or you look at the people that lose their jobs because a sugar, uh, because a uh, candy factory closes in Chicago and moves to Canada. They lose their jobs because the price of sugar is much higher in the United States than elsewhere because of the sugar program. So if that's what it comes down to, uh, you know, we do live in a world where 140 characters is all you get to express yourself, <laughs> and then maybe, uh, maybe we need to resort to that more frequently. But th there are cases to be made. You know, I, I, I totally agree. And I think the, the problem that I see is that um, the people with the loudest voice, the people with the microphones, are not making these cases. Um, and that's something you know, we just talked about. You know, policymakers, by and large, just simply don't want to talk about um, or, or are unable to talk about um, import benefits. Uh, a perfect example, and this is something I blogged on a while ago, was that in announcing the NEI, uh, Secretary uh, Gary Locke uh, gave this wonderful anecdote of this plane company called Air Tractor in Texas. And Air Tractor makes these cool planes that dump water and, and, and uh, put out forest fires. Very cool. And they're exporting all over the world. And it's all, of course, because of the United States government's help or something like that. But the, the thing that Secretary Locke left out was that Air Tractor imports Pratt & Whitney, Whitney engines from Canada, duty-free, in order to be globally competitive. The, there's such an easy story to demonstrate kind of the totality of trade, not just the export. And there's just kind of an odd or poll-driven unwillingness to go there. And I would argue that, um, you know, that, that, that is true with the moral arguments as well, um, about talking about why are we denying the air tractors of the world their, you know, uh, easy access to inputs, or the, the working mom, cheaper butter. Just doesn't make a lot of sense. Uh, yes. <clears throat> So it seems like there's sort of a, a discourse disconnect in that when you talk about trade, um, everybody needs to first decide what are we trading. And so that's what discerns whether or not we have an equitable trade. Ultimately, because reason happens, people trade things, and then you have um, uh, the overall mutual benefit. But the process of deciding how to trade, what's worth trading, seems to be some, something where um, people on the, who really know trade are able to talk about, but citizens might be a little bit less comfortable dealing with it. And so that's where I feel a lot of the discourse on protectionism happens. It's we're not willing to trade that. That's not worth it to us. Um, so I'm curious as to, as to where, how you feel you sort of get at that end of the debate. Um, where, what's sort of um, the citizen's role in the discourse of forming what it is that we should be trading. Because I almost wonder whether it's easier to have um, uh, a clearer free trade policy in, in a non-democracy 
for example, just say because no one can really say, you know, we want this protection because the government doesn't listen. Um, so I'm just curious to hear about what you folks think about that, the citizens' role in sort of starting what you want to trade. Uh, I, I think that, I mean, for me at least, your comment uh, question provides a, a great opportunity to, to make a moral case for trade. Uh, at, at bottom, free trade is nothing other than uh, uh, people, individuals, each with their own tastes and preferences and desires and histories, choosing to buy whatever they want to buy from whomever they want to buy without any collective decision to push it. And I, I think when put in that regard, that is a moral case. I have a right to spend my money as I see fit. And the fact that there's a political border that happens to separate me and you does nothing to affect that right. Or at least I'm going to put the, the burden on you to make the moral case that there's something relevant about that political border. Uh, but, well, so I mean, I, at, at bottom, that's for me, that's what the free trade case boils down to. Like, I really would like to, the United States to open up to small business people, more opportunities to start leadership in other countries, like to come over here and start. If that's something that's Scott's more the, the <laughs> trade lawyer. I, I, well, I mean, I, 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 you asked kind of a difficult question, I think. You know, the, the, I'm not a big fan of the federal government making it uh, going and making things easier elsewhere. I mean, I, I, I think there's a role for bilateral negotiations to improve business climates elsewhere. Um, but I mean, I think you, you raise a point that, that I think is, is more important, and that is that you know, oftentimes our policymakers implement really bad regulations here that, that thwart small businesses, and then they go ahead and blame trade for those things. They blame uh, the Chinese. It wasn't my horrible tax policy. It was the Chinese and those crazy imports. Um, and, and so, you know, I mean, I, I think that's really the, the, the key, is to, to ensure better domestic and easier domestic regulation to, to allow small business to flourish wherever, whether it's here or elsewhere. Right. So a lot of them over there live in other countries. They come on and expand here. I want to know why is it closed off for, these, for business people here? Why don't we know if we wanted to to do trade over there? Why don't we know how to do that? Why is it closed <coughs> to us? Because I, I got two masters degrees and I still. Are you speaking about a specific market? I'm, I'm just speaking in general that it's not taught that business people, people that take business classes, whatever, in the United States are really not open or really don't know opportunities overseas to like establish their businesses or expand it. I'm just saying is that an oversight? Because we would like to do more It sounds like there's a big uh, there's a market for some advisors to come out and explain <laughs> to small businesses like yours how, how, how to get into these markets. In fact there are plenty of advisory firms like that. Let's move on. I think there's some other hands up. Uh, yes sir right there. Uh, Stan Lieberman. Uh, yeah, I, I, we're not really talking just about free trade. We're talking about free trade that causes rising deficits. And I'm just wondering if there is not something 
put to your logic, you pointed out that the iPod uh, evaluated overseas is $120, but so let's say it's sold for $179 without profit, it brings $79 into the country. But $120 is less than the word. You buy an iPod, $120 leaves the country. So if you didn't buy the iPod, I'm not talking about the value of the iPod, we're talking about the comparison. Making $79 because we sent 120 over, you'd have $179 right here. And $179 would go for the full salary. We're not saying what the value of the iPod is. <coughs> We're saying what value is it to spend 120 so you can save 79 here. Uh, we're, we're running short on time, so let, let's get our, uh, give our panel a chance to respond. I'll just, just quickly, and then I'll let my co panelists. The seven, uh, $179 is what it costs to produce it. It's, it sells for more than twice that. All of that markup accrues to American entities, to Apple, who takes the profit, the distributors, the wholesalers, people in the supply chain, the logistics providers, uh, the, without access to, to cheaper labor, it would be much more expensive to make these products. And if it were much more expensive to make them, the market would be so much smaller. The market that has materialized in all these other related products uh, would not have existed. So, uh, you know, I, I think it's a good deal. It's, a, it's, it's quite a, it's a very good deal for us. When, when money goes, when dollars are spent abroad, they don't stay abroad. Foreigners don't accept American currency because they're fond of little monochrome portraits of dead American statesmen. They, they accept <laughs> that currency because they want to either invest it back here or spend it here. It doesn't go abroad and just stay there. It, co it comes back. That's the only, the foreigners accept dollars for the very same reason you accept dollars. Not because you want to keep the dollars, but because you want to invest them or spend them. And so it's a myth to think that when, 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 when uh, Americans spend dollars abroad, that those dollars somehow go over there and disappear. By the way, if they would disappear, there'd be an even better deal for us. But unfortunately, <laughs> foreigners are like us. It, uh, uh, also, they don't want to lose their dollars and stuff them under the mattress. They want to spend or invest those dollars uh, in the United States. But, but now, I mean, I totally agree with everything that Dan and Don just said. Um, and that's the, the great economic arguments, especially with the iPod, where it's assembled all over the place and really, you know, say that it's made in China, but the Chinese are getting about six bucks of value there. But, but beyond that, you, you have to ask yourself a, a simple question, and that is, so let's say that I am getting kind of a bad deal from buying an iPod. Well, the only way you're going to thwart that is by enlisting the power of the federal government to stop me from doing it. So if you're going to enlist the full force of the government to prevent my voluntary transaction with somebody else, I'm hoping you're going to have a pretty good, solid economic argument to do it. And as these guys just demonstrated, that's going to be pretty darn tough to do. And until you do it, I just simply don't want people getting involved in my personal transactions, ones that I think kind of benefit me. Okay, we're real short on time here. I think you may have to take off. All right, thank you, Don. Uh, let's try to have real, short, real brief uh, questions and real brief answers so we can get to as many hands as we can. And we'll, we'll start right there on Blue Shirt. idea that there's a um, global imbalance, economic imbalance, um, there's a glut of savings in other countries like China, whereas here in the United States there's been uh, too much consumption, um, and uh, you know, some people have linked this global imbalance to the economic crisis, um, and, and one proposal to, to 
correct this imbalance has been that we need to um, essentially stop consuming more here in the United States, which would mean less imports, and producing more and selling more overseas, which means more exports. So my question is, do you believe there is such a global economic imbalance? And if you do, what do you have to say to those who think that increasing exports is one way to correct that imbalance? Yes, there's global economic imbalance increasing exports uh, to the countries that save, that are saving w way too much uh, is, is one uh, avenue for resolution. But I just, I add one thing. You know, all of this talk about global imbalances, um, a lot of it is based on really sketchy data that really doesn't show you what's really going on because we use old school trade metrics to uh, analyze a globalized economy. And so I would just caution those of you in the room, anytime you hear someone advocating protectionism or some sort of top-down control because of these scary imbalances, l look at their arguments very closely and look at the, the data upon which they're, uh, they've based their, their strong claims. Uh, yes, sir. Here. Um, sometimes I hear the argument, you know, I'm I'm all for free trade, but then there's China that you know devalues right. its currency and gives us it's not it's not fair trade and all that stuff. What do you have to say about Chinese currency and stuff? How do you about that? Well, I mean, we could talk forever about Chinese currency. <laughs> we'll do um, a whole another hill briefing on that. But. Again, I, I, I think it's, again, really important to scrutinize the arguments of the people saying this. Because what they're trying to do is, is thwart our mutually beneficial transactions, you really need to examine whether China's currency is doing all of these horrible things, people claim, whether it's really as undervalued as people claim. And I go to my blog and check it out. You click on the currency link, and uh, it'll be page after page of refutation of all the bunk data that are out there on this issue. And until I, I see some really hard evidence that this is destroying the U.S. economy, I don't really want to get involved. I, I think the Chinese currency was undervalued. It might not be anymore. It has appreciated considerably uh, in, in, in nominal and particularly in real terms. Uh, but I don't think it's neither here nor there. It doesn't have much of an impact on our bilateral trade account well, because China is an export processor primarily. So uh, when the value of its currency rises, all of its imported inputs get, get cheaper so they can reduce their cost of production and remain, maintain their market share. And, and I'll just add two points, and I don't, I don't want to be the economist, I promise. Uh, but, you know, there's, there's two things. One, why do we care that the Chinese are subsidizing our consumption? That's the first thing because that's what some sort of currency manipulation would do. But, but second is that if you ask any – most of the economic ana analysis shows that the – the only thing that would change by a revaluation is the types of jobs that are benefiting and, and that. So we're not talking about some sort of massive economic upheaval here. Uh, yes, please. The administration has mentioned that they want 21st century ideas. Do you think that is just a discord for the American people or there is a real possibility of getting an agenda in that respect? No. I, I, I don't think there's much of a chance of getting a, a real trade agenda out of the idea of a 21st century FTA. Um, personally, I think that was a, a way to try to distinguish the administration's work on TPP from the Bush-era FTAs of old. However, if you actually look at the substance that are coming out of these 21st century negotiations, it sure looks a lot like those old FTA. I know we didn't get to everybody's hand. I'm, I'm really apologetic about that, but uh, we're way over our time now. So 
Please join me in thanking Scott and Dan. Don had to leave. Uh, I think Dan and Scott can maybe stick around for a couple minutes if you have some questions to come to the front, but we don't want to get dragged out of here by Capitol Police. So, thanks.